Good evening and welcome to Tucker Carlson. Tonight, just another evening and it's what has become a pretty high drama country, really. The jury in the Kyle Rittenhouse trial has gone home for the night after many hours of deliberations today. The average jury reaches a verdict in just a few hours, so these jurors are taking much longer than most. But it's probably not because the evidence they have heard is confusing them. In a typical trial, an insider trading trial, for example, something complex, an honest observer might be able to see both sides of the case and probably can. But that is not true here, far from it. In fact, it's the opposite. From the very first moments of this trial, it was obvious that Kyle Rittenhouse never should have been indicted in the first place. The key question was, did Kyle Rittenhouse act in self-defense that night in Kenosha? And the answer unequivocally is yes, obviously. It's a no-brainer. It's like the OJ trial. No honest person could reach a different conclusion. Kyle Rittenhouse shot men he believed were trying to kill him. Now, why did Kyle Rittenhouse believe that, you may ask? Well, in one case, the man he shot told him so directly. I plan to kill you. Of the other two men Kyle Rittenhouse shot, one repeatedly bashed him in the head with a skateboard as he lay on the ground, and the other stuck a loaded gun in his face. So Kyle Rittenhouse fought back in order to save his own life. We're not guessing about that. Even the prosecution's witnesses made that point. So once that happened, once Kyle Rittenhouse's life was threatened on the street in Kenosha, what were his options exactly? Well, he could fight back or he could allow himself to be murdered by the rioters. And allowing himself to be murdered by the rioters is essentially what the prosecution has argued he should have done. Kyle Rittenhouse had a duty to submit to the mob. Well, that's lunacy. And no sane jury could agree with that for a second. So the question is, why is it taking so long for this jury to produce a very obvious verdict? Want the answer? We'll look outside the courtroom. There are hundreds of National Guard troops assembled tonight in Kenosha. Why are they there? Well, they've come in case Kyle Rittenhouse is acquitted. Not in case he's convicted, in case he's acquitted. At which point, if he is acquitted, pretty much everyone expects the usual mobs of Joe Biden voters to burn and loot and destroy why does everyone expect this? Because people on the left are openly calling for it. Quote, now that jury deliberation has begun, I think every city in America should prepare for what could happen if Rittenhouse gets acquitted. It may get rightfully unpleasant. That's the message from a teacher. And we checked an actual teacher from the state of Indiana wrote it on Twitter today. And it echoes what many others are saying tonight. So imagine if you were a juror in this case. How would you feel about this? You're not sequestered. You know how the country feels. You know what the threats are. Well, you might think twice before you acquitted Kyle Rittenhouse, no matter what the evidence was. You remember what happened after Rodney King. Remember that? They burned Los Angeles to the ground. You wouldn't want to be responsible for that. You wouldn't want to spark riots. And of course, that's the whole point of the exercise. The mob threatens violence. The rest of us tremble. And pretty soon, the mob controls our justice system. Pretty soon, the enemies of civilization, which is what they are, are in charge of the country. That's what's happening now. So it's worth pausing for a moment to ask, how do we get here exactly? Well, here's one summary that caught our eye. Today, a Hill staffer called Billy Gribben summed it up in the following way. Quote, we're waiting to see if riots break out because of media lies about a case from a riot that happened because of media lies. Well, that's nicely put, and it's totally true. The August 2020 riot in Kenosha wasn't really a riot in the way that we understand riots. It was an outbreak of political violence. It began three days after the Democratic Convention. That was the context for it. It was, in fact, one of many riots that summer across the country, all of which were explicitly supported by the leadership of the Democratic Party. We're not making this up. Look it up. 
What was the point of these riots? Well, of course, big picture, the point was to unseat Donald Trump. In the specific case of Kenosha, we know exactly the chain of events that led to where we are today. A man called Jacob Blake was shot by the police. Immediately, the media and the Democratic politicians they served lied about what happened. So they told us that a cop, cop shot Jacob Blake in the back for no apparent reason. And by the way, Jacob Blake was unarmed. He was helpless. They just pulled him out of a lineup and shot him because that's what America's like. Kamala Harris then jumped in and said she was, quote, proud of Jacob Blake, like he was a civil rights hero, like he was shot for being the wrong color, as so often happens in the systemically racist country. But it was all totally untrue. Not just the themes, but the facts. They were lies. In fact, the police were responding to a call from a woman who said Jacob Blake was trying to kidnap her child. So the police showed up, as they should have. They tried to detain Jacob Blake, and Jacob Blake fought the cops. Then he grabbed a knife. Jacob Blake was holding that knife when he was shot by the police. Jacob Blake admitted that on television. But it was too late. Based on the first false stories from the news media told intentionally, our leaders suggested that these riots in Kenosha were somehow justified and then allowed them to continue. So this is what Kenosha looked like the night that Kyle Rittenhouse arrived to help defend local businesses. That's not a civil rights protest. That's not people fighting back against oppression, systemic racism. That's just people destroying things they didn't build. That's people wrecking our civilization. In no normal country would that be allowed. It would be put down immediately with force. That's why we have police. You can't allow that because if you do allow that, people get killed, as they did. But local police, you should know, did virtually nothing to stop any of the things you just saw. From the very top of the power structure of the state of Wisconsin, the word was, let it happen. The governor of Wisconsin, Tony Evers, in fact, turned down an offer from Washington to send federal officers in order to help get Kenosha under control, to save the city. That was a shockingly irresponsible decision. It was an immoral decision. But Tony Evers still defends it. I have no regrets, he says. Really, that's because he doesn't live in Kenosha. Downtown Kenosha burned. It will never be rebuilt. Talk about a city that doesn't deserve any of this. Kenosha is a town of just 100,000 people. Many of them, by the way, are Hispanic. That even matters, but it's true. They're not rich people who live there. Kenosha is far past its prime. It was part of the industrial base that built this country, that built the modern world. Now it's suffering even more than it was before the riots because a bunch of entitled anti-social lunatics broke things for no reason because our leaders allowed them. A city official estimates the damage from last summer's riots about $50 million. That's a lot in Kenosha. In fact, it's more than half the entire municipal budget for the city of Kenosha. So why did the people in charge allow Kenosha to be destroyed? This happened over days. They allowed this. Why? Well, for the same reason they indicted Kyle Rittenhouse, to send a very clear message to the rest of us watching on television. Don't resist. When the mob comes, you can't fight back. We're in charge. We'll do what we want. All summer, they sent that message to the rest of us. All summer, they made that very clear. 
Here's what happened to one man who foolishly tried to defend his own business from looters in Dallas. There's so much video like that. And at the time, we restrained ourselves and didn't show all of it. We're not going to show all of it tonight because it's too divisive. It's too awful. It hypes people up too much. It's too emotional. But it's totally real. That happened across the country to people who did nothing wrong. So the message over time was very, very clear. And again, it's the same message they're sending us with the Rittenhouse trial. Resistance is futile. Try to defend yourself and we're going to throw you in jail. During closing arguments, in case you missed the point, one of the prosecutors in this case said it out loud. When the mob comes, he said, just let him beat you. Everybody takes a beating sometimes, right? Sometimes you get in a, a scuffle and maybe you do get hurt a little bit. That doesn't mean you get to start plugging people with your full metal jacket AR-15 rounds and no bullets are not bullets. Everyone takes a beating sometimes? You've taken a beating, Tubby? I doubt it. How dare you talk like that in court? In a sane, civilized society, you can't condone violence just because the people committing it vote for the candidate you like. You can't. Notice the change here, though. This case has gone from white supremacists hunts down and executes BLM protesters, right, like it was a racial case, everyone's white, to the new theme, which is that teenager should have accepted his beating from the child molester arsonist who was chasing him and threatening to kill him. And because he didn't, he needs to go to jail. Once again, very clear message. Submit. The prosecution hammered this again and again and again. Watch. Why do you get to immediately just start shooting? As Mr. Binger said, he brought a gun to a fist fight. And he was too cowardly to use his own fist to fight his way out. He has to start shooting. Really? Too cowardly? A 17-year-old should have gotten in a fist fight with a 36-year-old violent pedophile? Right. Speaking of cowardly, where were the police who were paid to stop this stuff? Who were paid to keep mob violence from happening in the first place? Where's the governor? Who was under too much political pressure to protect his own people. Talk about cowardly. Blaming a 17-year-old who shows up because the city his dad lives in is on fire and he wants to do something? He shouldn't have been there in the first place. He shouldn't have had to have been there. The adults should have been there. They're the cowards. These prosecutors are appalling. This whole spectacle is appalling. At the same time, watch how the prosecutor characterizes the pedophile's actions the night he was shot. So what does he do that night? Oh, let me tell you all the awful things Joseph Rosenbaum did. He tipped over a porta potty that had no one in it. He swung a chain. He lit a metal garbage dumpster on fire. Oh, and there's this empty wooden flatbed trailer that they pulled out in the middle of the road and they tipped it over to stop some bear cats and they lit it on fire. Oh, and he said some bad words. He said the N-word. That's one of the weirdest things that's ever happened in open court. That's the prosecutor. That's a government official mocking the idea that it's a big deal to light cars on fire to keep the police from coming in and restoring order. It's just not a big deal at all. That's what the prosecutor's telling us. That's what he just said. He's also saying, by the way, it's not a big deal to scream racial slurs in public. Really? So 
existence. When is that true? This is lunacy. By the way, the jury was never allowed to hear the details of the life of this guy, Joseph Rosenbaum. He had quite a history. Does seem sort of relevant, actually. The rest of the media is not going to tell you anything about it, so we, we will. In 2002, Joseph Rosenbaum was charged by a grand jury with 11 counts of child molestation, including forcible sodomy. This wasn't, you know, he was 19 and he had a 17-year-old girlfriend. No, no, no. He raped children. The victims were five boys between the ages of 9 and 11. Ultimately, Rosenbaum was sentenced to 10 years in prison for this. When he got out of prison, Rosenbaum destroyed his ankle monitor, the one he was required to wear. The day he died, Rosenbaum had an open case for domestic abuse. They're defending this guy. Just hours before he threatened to Kyle, kill Kyle Rosen, Rittenhouse, Rosenbaum had been released from a mental hospital. He's being treated for some sort of disorder, obviously. He tried to go back to his fiancée, but she had a no-contact order after she pressed charges against him a month earlier for hitting her. So this is the man they're telling you was a model citizen. Let me just remind people of the names of the victims. Joseph Rosenbaum, who was 36 years old. Anthony Huber, who was 26. Gage Grosskreutz, who was only 27 years old, was injured. These are the victims. These are the people um, that people ought to remember are the people who were hurt here, not the person who was crying on the stand today. So if, if you were an honest progressive, wouldn't you ask yourself, what are all these people doing at a Joe Biden rally three days after the Democratic convention? They're all on my side, but I noticed that all of them are actually horrible. This is not a cross-section of America. These are the worst people in America. Joseph Rosenbaum, the child rapist? Huh. What about the other victims? Well, our media tells you a main victim is a guy called Gage Grosskreutz. He's the guy who ran up to Kyle Rittenhouse and pointed a loaded gun in his face, for which he's never been charged, by the way. That's not a big deal because he votes the right way. Who is this guy? Well, Grosskreutz, it turns out, also has a lengthy criminal history. That includes an arrest for hitting his own grandmother in the face. Just six days before he testified in the trial, in fact, Grosskreutz was in court on a DUI charge, which Joe Biden says is not a big deal, but most of us grew up thinking you were not supposed to do that. Several years ago, Grosskreutz was charged with smashing the bedroom window of his ex-girlfriend's home at 4 a.m. On the night Kyle Rittenhouse shot him, Grosskreutz has admitted he was carrying an illegal firearm. Oh, no longer a big deal either. Gun crimes don't matter if you vote the wrong way. So what about the last guy, Anthony Huber? He's the man who hit Kyle Rittenhouse twice in the head with a skateboard. Who is he? Well, he's a convicted domestic abuser. According to court records, Huber once told his brother that if he didn't clean a room in his house, he was going to, quote, gut him like a pig. Huber said that while he was holding a six-inch knife to his brother's stomach. Then he grabbed his brother's neck and said this, quote, I'm going to burn this house down with all of you in it. Huber pleaded guilty to one count of strangulation that time. So I guess the point is pretty simple. There were a lot of violent criminals at this particular Joe Biden rally in Kenosha, Wisconsin last summer. What are the odds of that? Kind of hard not to contrast it with what happened on, say, January 6th, the insurrection they never stopped telling us about. No one has been charged with carrying a gun inside the Capitol building that day. How many fires did they set? None that we're aware of. But they get to rot in solitary confinement anyway, why Gage Grusskreutz gets the seal of approval from MSNBC anchors for pointing a loaded gun he was carrying illegally in the face of a child. So the Kyle Rittenhouse trial is wrapping up, but the people who engineered the political prosecution behind this are still in power. One of the main takeaways from all of this is that those people are now more brazen than they have ever been. They're just saying it out loud now. Hey, Sean Hannity here. Hey, click here to subscribe to Fox News YouTube page and catch our hottest interviews and most compelling analysis. You will not get it anywhere else.
Welcome to China in Focus. I'm Tiffany Meyer. The Chinese regime is hinting at war. From an amphibious landing exercise simulating an invasion across the Taiwan Strait, to increasing benefits for military members, to making changes to a law that gives communist leader Xi Jinping more power to mobilize the country and wage a war. A series of military-related moves by China is raising concerns. Some worry the communist regime is already on track toward preparing the country to invade Taiwan. And it may not stop at Taiwan either. The U.S. report says the regime may quadruple its nuclear weapons stockpile from its current 200 to 700 in 2027 and 1,000 by 2030. We don't know if the regime is seriously trying to mobilize its 1.4 billion people for a military conflict in the near future or if it's just trying to ramp up nationalism and distract the population from current domestic problems. As for other options, given its threats to Taiwan, Beijing could be trying to launch an information war across the strait. That way, the Taiwanese people will submit without the Communist Party firing a single bullet. Regardless of the regime's actual goal, the atmosphere in mainland China is changing. Unverified videos of the Chinese army allegedly deploying weapons have spread like wildfire through Chinese social media platforms, sparking online discussions about Taiwan. What's more, Chinese citizens started panic buying and stocking up on essentials like rice. That's after China's Ministry of Commerce published a notice advising households to stock up on daily necessities in case of emergencies. The notice prompted heated online debate over whether emergencies indicated a potential invasion of Taiwan. The panic buying got so intense, state media later had to clarify that the advice wasn't related to war plans against Taiwan. And along China's coast, authorities in Jiangsu, Shandong and Anhui provinces have started handing out air defense emergency kits to residents. They are also posting informational videos about what to do in the event of an air raid. Many citizens posted about the packages they received on social media. While Chinese media outlets reported that compressed biscuits and luncheon meat became the top most searched items on online shopping platforms. Chinese citizens' speculation about war isn't out of the blue. Since the beginning of the year, the regime has taken a series of actions, shifting the country towards what looks like wartime policy. This February, Beijing put a law into effect that for the first time ever explicitly allows its Coast Guard to fire on foreign vessels, meaning vessels that enter waters claimed by the Chinese regime. But that may be disputed by the international community including the South China Sea. And then in October, another string of actions began. First, the regime conducted one of the largest military exercises ever to simulate a land-based invasion of Taiwan. Then news came that the regime had tested a nuclear-capable hypersonic missile designed to evade American nuclear defenses. So, bottom line, all this essentially means China is close to being able to launch a nuclear warhead against any other nation without any warning and there'd be no defense against it. The U.S. military's top officer, General Mark Milley, called it a very significant test. He noted that China's nuclear missile represents a fundamental change in the military balance of power. Also last month, the regime passed a new land border law. In it, Beijing declared it will combat any act that undermines territorial sovereignty and land boundaries.
Beijing's new land border law is a serious concern. India's foreign ministry spokesman said China's new law could have implications for conditions in the two countries' shared border areas. The Chinese regime also made some legal changes that essentially give Xi Jinping greater power to mobilize the country for war. The director for a top Chinese think tank wrote that the legal update would help the regime to mobilize its civil and military resources more effectively in order to realize China's reunification. In communist China, the term reunification is linked to a future invasion against Taiwan. That's because Beijing believes the island is part of China and must be reunified with the mainland. That's exactly what many Chinese netizens speculate will happen. Some left comments like, we have to liberate Taiwan, and something huge is coming on social media platform Weibo. Speaking of Xi Jinping, he's also asking for more groundbreaking weapons to gear up the Chinese military. That's on top of new army equipment ordering regulations. The new rules ask for a comprehensive focus on preparing for war and fighting battles and look to ensure the rapid generation of combat power. He also recently approved granting some benefits for Chinese soldiers, free medical services for their spouses. That takes effect next year. Then comes a handful of moves directly targeting Taiwan. Despite the fact that the island's not under the regime's control, Beijing has already started to make plans to allocate Taiwan's public finances. Chinese media reported that at a so-called national reunification and Chinese rejuvenation seminar, the communist regime's Taiwan Affairs Office Deputy Director Liu Junquan claimed that after reunification, Taiwan's financial income can totally be used to improve civil life though he didn't mention whose civil life he was referring to. A report published by Georgetown University shows that China's People's Liberation Army, or PLA, has used and is using artificial intelligence to simulate war games, specifically for invasion operations against Taiwan. So what does the U.S. have to say? Despite the tensions, top U.S. military leaders don't seem to believe that war is imminent. U.S. Army General Mark Milley said at last week's Aspen Security Forum that he didn't think the invasion would strike in the near future. But he did add, quote, the Chinese are clearly and unambiguously building the capability to provide those options to the national leadership if they so choose at some point in the future. He also pointed out that there is no question the U.S. has the ability to defend Taiwan. At the same time, Trump-era National Security Advisor Robert O'Brien warns of Chinese mischief on Taiwan by 2024. He says Beijing probably won't do anything during the Beijing Winter Olympics in February, but noted the regime may have concerns that a tough-on-China candidate could win the White House in 2024, like Donald Trump or Mike Pompeo. Because of that, O'Brien warns the window between those two events could pose a dangerous opportunity for Beijing. Asked in an October we town hall about whether he would defend Taiwan against a Chinese attack, President Biden replied, Yes, we have a commitment to do that. But the White House later walked back the comment, saying the U.S. maintains its so-called strategic ambiguity policy. So what exactly is the U.S.'s commitment to Taiwan? To summarize, the U.S. follows something called the One China Policy.
As you said, we remain committed to our One China policy. One China policy. Uh, President Trump agreeing to honor the One China policy. The One China policy has become an incantation. It's like the Lord's Prayer. You simply can't question it. But what exactly is the One China policy? It goes back to over 70 years ago. Mao Zedong is head of the Communist Party. During the Chinese Civil War in the 1940s, the Communist Army led by Mao Zedong defeated the ruling Nationalist Party led by Chiang Kai-shek. Chiang and his government, known as the Republic of China, retreated to the island of Taiwan. In 1971, the United Nations General Assembly formally declared the communist government to be the only legitimate representatives of China and expelled the representatives of nationalist leader Chiang Kai-shek from their UN seats. In view of the frenzy and the irrational manners that has been exhibited in this hall, the, re- the delegation of the Republic of China has now decided not to take part to any further proceedings of this General Assembly. Nonetheless, Taiwan started moving towards democracy. After ending decades of martial law in the 1980s, the government in Taiwan saw its first peaceful transition of power to another political party in 2000. The island now enjoys the freedoms of speech, press and religion. That's in contrast to the one-party dictatorship that controls communist China. To understand the U.S.'s one-China policy, it's important to note that it's not the same thing as the so-called one-China principle talked about by the Chinese communist regime. Under that principle, Beijing claims Taiwan as one of its provinces and vows to reunite it with the mainland by force if necessary. The U.S.'s one-China policy is much longer and more complicated than Beijing's version. It's composed of several key documents and statements issued by different administrations throughout the decades, including the three U.S.-China joint communiques, the Taiwan Relations Act, and the Six Assurances. After President Richard Nixon visited China, the U.S. built formal diplomatic ties with Communist China in 1979. In the joint communique, the U.S. recognizes the government in Beijing as the sole legal government of China, and it acknowledges the Chinese position that there is but one China and Taiwan is part of China. But acknowledgement does not equal endorsement. By only acknowledging the Chinese position, the United States did not adopt as its own. In essence, the U.S. is not recognizing the PRC's claim over Taiwan, nor Taiwan as a sovereign state. U.S. policy has considered Taiwan's status as unsettled. But that's not all. Under the six assurances issued by President Ronald Reagan, the U.S. vows to help make sure Taiwan maintains a sufficient self-defense capability. That's why the U.S. has been selling weapons to the island and helping train Taiwanese soldiers. President Bill Clinton stated in 2000 that any solution to the China-Taiwan problem must have the assent of the people of Taiwan. Different countries have used different language to describe their takes on Beijing's claim over Taiwan. Fifty-eight countries say they recognize that Taiwan is part of China. They include Israel, Portugal and South Africa. The UK and Australia use the same word acknowledge. Japan used the phrase understand and respect. Canada used take note of. While 56 other countries, including Germany and Ireland, did not mention Taiwan at all.
Last week, Taiwan's intelligence chief said there were discussions happening among top Chinese Communist Party leaders about a possible attack on Dongsha or Pratis Island. That's a tiny atoll in the South China Sea. It's located near Taiwan, and 500 Taiwanese troops are stationed there. Taiwanese officials have described the island as easy to attack but hard to defend. That's also the starting point outlined in a recent war game report by the Center for a New American Security. It began with China using military force to take control of Dongsha. That said, the scenario may not be imminent. Taiwan intelligence chief Chen Mingtong told lawmakers last week that the attack may not happen during current Taiwanese president Tsai Ing-wen's term. That term ends in 2024. Similarly, a new U.S. report on Chinese military power predicted 2027 as a milestone year. And when China expects to be able to force Taiwan to accept a negotiated surrender. That plus being able to prevent U.S. forces from interfering. As for Beijing's recent war hinting, some say it's more likely a form of political posturing. Political commentator Bi Xing told Radio Free Asia that if there was going to be a war, basically it would be under martial law. But he says the Communist Party is now trying to give public morale a boost and show China hasn't given up on annexing Taiwan. But others see things differently and argue that the U.S. should prepare for the worst. Many people are saying that the full Chinese invasion force wouldn't really be ready until uh, 2025, which is four years away. Um, but we've been surprised so frequently by Russia, China, uh, hypersonic missiles. Uh, we were surprised at 9-11. We were surprised uh, at Pearl Harbor. Uh, so I think the best assumption is that we're going to be surprised again. And so we should be ready uh, for an invasion attempt tomorrow. So why should the U.S. defend Taiwan's safety? And why should Americans care either way? From a military standpoint, Taiwan is a key part of what's called the First Island Chain. That's a string of islands that prevents the Chinese Navy from expanding its power towards the Western Pacific and getting close to U.S. territory. Taiwan is also home to the world's most important semiconductor or microchip producer. The tiny devices are the brains behind our cars, computers, and virtually all electronics. So keeping those manufacturers safe is essential for global supply chain stability. But there's more. Taiwan is, in microcosm, uh, really the dispositive issue of the 21st century. Is totalitarianism going to win, or is democracy going to win? China expert Bradley Thayer says Taiwan represents an alternative China. China does not have to be ruled by the thuggish Chinese Communist Party. Taiwan offers an alternative government, right? Taiwan demonstrates that China works as a democracy. Americans need to recognize that we would hold out hope that someday that Taiwan would be the future government of China and that at some point the CCP will fall and it will be replaced by a, a democratic government. As long as Taiwan exists, the Chinese Communist Party will see it as a threat. Thayer says Taiwan has shown the world how China could function within the confines of traditional, not communist, Chinese culture. Good evening, I'm Evelyn Lee. I'll be taking it from here because Tiffany is on a conference right now, but we'll be back soon. U.S. National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan tells Australia that in the Indo-Pacific, the United States will remain a persistent power and that America is not going anywhere. 
Well, first of all, we are a resident power in the Indo-Pacific, and the United States is not going anywhere, and we're not going anywhere in the Indo-Pacific either. The comment was made on Thursday, on the same day Chinese Communist Party head Xi Jinping said in a speech that attempts to draw ideological lines or form small circles in the Asia-Pacific region is bound to fail. Xi's remark is widely seen as criticism of partnerships such as AUKUS with Australia, the US and Britain. The partnership would see Australia building nuclear submarines. Australia responded on Friday. Prime Minister Scott Morrison rejected China's apparent criticism. If that means that we'll attract criticism because we decide to get better submarines and that upsets people and they want to have a sledge at me, well, so be it. But what I know is this, a key part of having a free and open Indo-Pacific is working especially with our like-minded partners. The U.S. is reaffirming its commitment to Japan. It comes amid Beijing's continued military pressure in the South and East China Seas. The head of the U.S. Indo-Pacific Command, Admiral John Aquilino, met with Japanese Prime Minister Fumio Kishida in Tokyo on Thursday. Aquilino told Kishida he is committed to working with Japan to deliver a free and open Indo-Pacific and peace and stability and prosperity for the region. Japan and the U.S. are part of a strategic alliance known as the Quad. This alliance is often seen as a measure to counter China's increasing aggression in the Indo-Pacific. Aquilino's trip comes on the heels of recent visits from top British and German Navy officials. On Tuesday at a news conference in Tokyo, the chief of Germany's Navy said that a dispatch of German warships in the Indo-Pacific is a show of support for Japan. The frigate arrived in Tokyo last Friday. It's the first German warship to visit Japan in nearly 20 years. New satellite images show that China's third aircraft carrier, which is under construction, could be launching in just three to six months. That's according to an analysis by American think tank Center for Strategic and International Studies. Satellite images show steady construction progress on the Chinese carrier throughout the year. It's currently dubbed Type 003, and it will have more advanced technologies compared to China's two existing aircraft carriers. Estimates show that the Type 003 is more than 1,000 feet in length. It has a displacement of up to 100,000 tons. This matches the class of carriers like that of the U.S. Navy's Gerald R. Ford. Those supercarriers can hold up to 90 aircraft. They use an electromagnetic aircraft launch system rather than traditional steam catapults for launching aircraft. Although the carrier could be launched in the coming months, it will still be years before the Type 003 is commissioned into the Chinese Navy. The latest U.S. Department of Defense assessment estimates it will enter service by 2024. The Chinese Communist Party's cult of personality is brought to a new high. Party leader Xi Jinping was hailed a helmsman and people's leader by Communist Party officials on Friday. That's the language used for China's first communist leader Mao Zedong, who launched China's brutal decade-long cultural revolution. And Mao's ambitious Great Leap Forward starved millions of Chinese people to death. Now Xi Jinping picks up the title for his leadership. Following a four-day closed-door meeting known as the Sixth Plenum, the party passed a so-called historical resolution highlighting its achievements under Xi Jinping and fortifying his core position in the party. The resolution did not mention the dark moments of the party's past. It's expected that Xi Jinping will secure an unprecedented third term as party leader next year. 
Some experts even believe Xi Jinping's goal is to stay in power to the end of his life, like his party predecessors Mao Zedong and Deng Xiaoping. Yet communist China's pervasive social injustice and a yawning wealth gap threatens the legitimacy of communist party rule. Two massive taxi drivers strikes within two weeks in a megacity in China's southwest. Thousands of taxis pack the roads, honking, same time, same location. Thousands of taxis honking. Videos released on social media show a river of yellow taxis in southwestern China's Chongqing on Thursday. Taxi drivers on strike, protesting what they say are excessive company charges. The drivers complain the taxi company they work with takes over 70% of their gross income, and they have to pay costs out of pocket, leaving them with almost nothing. We've been acting on this for some time. We post photos of our gross income to the social media platform WeChat. Those are facts. We have proof that the operating conditions are so bad, and thus we're asking the taxi company to lower their fees. The driver told NTD is the second strike this month. The first was early November. According to some insiders, after the first strike, the Chongqing municipality worried there could be more strikes, especially during the Communist Party's top officials' meeting earlier this week. So they ordered the taxi company to waive their drivers' fees for the first half of November, but the company simply ignored the order. That led to the second strike. While more videos emerged online, Chinese mainstream media remained silent. It's not yet clear whether the regime will punish the company and the taxi drivers. A Danish artist is asking Hong Kong authorities for assurances that he won't be prosecuted under the city's national security law. The sculptor is planning to take his work back to Denmark. It's a statue called Pillar of Shame, which depicts the 1989 Tiananmen Square massacre. Drifty Kekar reports. The creator of a statue that commemorates protesters killed during the Tiananmen Square crackdown says he wants immunity from Hong Kong's national security law so that he can take the sculpture back to Denmark. Artist Jens Galschut made the request in an open letter on Friday, saying that his presence in the city was necessary for the operation to relocate the pillar of shame to go well. Galschut said he wanted reassurances that he would not be prosecuted under a sweeping national security law that was imposed by Beijing in 2020. The legislation is aimed at punishing acts of subversion, secession, terrorism and collusion with foreign forces. The 8-meter-tall, 2-ton copper sculpture depicts dozens of torn and twisted bodies and is set to mark China's crackdown in 1989 on pro-democracy protesters in Tiananmen Square. It's been on display at the University of Hong Kong for more than two decades and was loaned by the Danish sculptor to a local civil society group, the Hong Kong Alliance in Support of Patriotic Democratic Movements in China in perpetuity. However, in October, the school asked the group to remove the statue from its premises and set a deadline for it, which expired a month ago. That was all after the alliance had already disbanded weeks before, with some of its members being accused of national security offenses. The university, Hong Kong's security bureau, and the immigration department did not immediately respond to requests for comment. And that's it for today's China in Focus. Thank you for tuning in and have a great weekend.